official Rutgers SECD Lab podcast, SECD On Demand. My name is Aisar Abdelil, and I'm a rising third year student at Wellesley College in Massachusetts. I study international relations history and music, and I'm an intern on the digital communications and social media team at the SECD Lab. I'm joined here today by Sam Damon. So it's my pleasure to formally introduce Sam. Sam is committed to creating greater opportunities for people to achieve their potential by way of policies and socio-emotional and character development, SECD, interventions. In this pursuit, he has designed and consulted on school-based SECD programs, as well as published peer-reviewed articles and a book chapter on the subject. Sam is a graduate of Rutgers University's Clinical Psychology Doctoral, Doctoral Program and Yale School of Medicine's Doctoral Internship in Clinical and Community Psychology. He will be moving on to a postdoctoral fellowship in clinical child psychology at Mayo Clinic. Sam also tells us that he enjoys participating in the annual JDRF bike ride with family, singing karaoke with friends, and listening to podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just want to add that we deeply appreciate you doing this for us. And without further ado, we present to you Sam. So tell us about your day. How are you doing? you just went through a recent move. I did. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Isar. I really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, I recently moved to Minnesota, originally from New Jersey. Uh, I just completed my uh, clinical doctoral internship uh, this past year. And, uh, and so now I'm going to be starting a postdoctoral fellowship in clinical child psychology psychology uh, at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We're glad to hear that uh, everything's going well, us and the listeners. Um, So the first question that we love to ask um, people when they join us in the podcast, um, for our viewers and listeners who are learning about SEL for the first time, um, what does SEL mean to you? And could you give us kind of like a little timeline of your relationship with SEL? Sure. Uh, So I kind of like an SEL to life skills. Uh, The skills that are not necessarily traditionally taught in schools, but are essential for life uh, to help us bounce back from setbacks, uh, effectively pursue and achieve our goals, uh, act consistently with our values. These are all things that are essential for life, but again, are not necessarily formally taught in school. And so SEL, social emotional learning, really tries to fill that void. And then there was a second part of your question, which was- A little bit of like a timeline. Um, Of my relationship with SEL. So I, um, I guess to, to rewind the clocks a little bit, I studied social policy at Northwestern University. Um, as I was talking a little bit about before with you. Uh, and I was very interested in how to create greater equality of opportunity for people to really achieve their potential. I felt like people's zip code, the zip code that they're born into should not determine the trajectory of their lives. And so I became very interested in uh, policies that could influence uh, people's circumstances and the trajectory of their lives, such as education policy and housing policy, for instance. Uh, In addition to that, I also thought it was critical to help people cultivate kind of the internal resources to help them navigate challenging circumstances. Uh, And I was very influenced by the work of Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor and psychiatrist who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. he was a proponent of the idea that if someone has a, a so-called self-transcendent purpose in life, uh, a purpose that extends beyond just themselves, uh, and they're also able to um, gain greater mastery over their emotions, uh, those, those two components can help people survive potentially horrific circumstances and potentially even thrive. And I thought, okay, well, people who are, again, born into zip codes that may not provide the the greatest resources um, for future success in life, um, how can can I help to uh, encourage policies that will help provide 
uh, a greater circumstances, but also uh, how can I help uh, people cultivate those internal resources to help them develop a or identify a self-transcendent purpose and to gain greater mastery of their emotions so that they can really thrive and achieve their full potential in life. Uh, and so although I didn't formally study psychology as an undergrad at Northwestern, after graduating, I sought out different psychologists who were doing work in this area of helping people cultivate resilience and purpose in life. And, uh, and eventually that led me to Dr. Elias's social, emotional and character development lab. But along the way, I worked with um, some other psychologists um, who are doing some great work in this field, such as Dr. Angela Duckworth uh, and her character lab uh, and, uh, and several other people. And so um, that's kind of my history with social and emotional learning. So Chicago and New Jersey are very interesting demographic communities. Do you think that also being in those two spaces for long durations of time, did that influence your career path, your professional path? I think, um, well, I think what I, and I think part of the purpose of this podcast is also to be a resource for potentially people who are interested in pursuing this field. And so I think it, Again, the environment to, to, to um, talk a little bit about my own circumstances, being at a place like Northwestern where there was a, an opportunity to major in social policy that focused explicitly on helping people achieve their potential in life, um, that opportunity may not have been present at another university, for instance. And so just by virtue of where I went to undergrad, it provided me with that opportunity and that exposure to get more interested in this area. Um, but I think you were also asking about how did the, the unique demographics of Chicago and uh, New Jersey influence me as well? Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, because you, you kind of like came back <clears throat> to work at the SEC lab and Rutgers um, and then now you're returning to Minnesota. So it's like two similar, yeah, returning to those areas. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's interesting. They're both in the Midwest, the Chicago area and um, Minnesota, but I think demographically they're very different. Uh, I've, during my time, both uh, this past year and as a graduate student, uh, I've had the opportunity to work with people in New Jersey and school systems in Florida and all over the country, um, which is partly a function of this, the pandemic, actually, uh, it's been a little bit easier to work remotely with people in different states. Uh, and I think a common theme of some of the different places that I've worked in is that um, the, the students have been exposed to a lot of adversity. Um, and, and so taking kind of a trauma-informed approach uh, to those schools is, I think, critical. Um, and one way in which that could look is that to ensure that the routines that are being implemented in the schools are very consistent. So, um, so there's that regular routine, and it, it, it doesn't um, uh, yeah, so there's a, there's a regular routine that allows for that consistency and that stability that is so important for people who have been exposed to trauma or a lot of adversity in life. So I think that's a com one of the common themes in the different areas that I've been. Well, also, the, I, I would say one of the other areas of some um, difference, a difference and a similarity is that, for instance, this year, I'm going to be working in a hospital setting where um, a lot of people are gonna be struggling with uh, different illnesses, uh, which is very different from the settings that I've been in, which is traditionally school-based settings. But again, I think a common theme is that they're struggling with a lot of adversity, circumstances that are beyond their control in, in many situations um, and how they can cope with those situations. Uh, and so I think social and emotional learning can play a critical role in helping people cope with circumstances that may be beyond uh, their control. Yes. 
students. So, so you kind of you, you contextualize the social circumstances that have been put forth before them prior to birth, prior to it's like intergenerational trauma that's been lasting there that they can't really have any influence over. I think that's part of it for sure. Yeah. So I pardon for going off track a little bit. How did you learn about the SECD lab then? And how did you um, begin working there? And what was one of your favorite parts of your relationship with the lab? So I heard about uh, the SECD lab uh, while I was working uh, at Dr. Angela Duckworth's character lab. And I was doing research on different people in this space, uh, the social and emotional learning and character development space. And uh, and actually I was, this is a good resource for listeners to your um, to this podcast is CASEL, C-A-S-E-L. That's a great resource for social and emotional learning. Uh, and one of the senior scholars who were listed on that website was Dr. Maurice Elias. And so I did a little bit more exploration, a little bit more research, and the work he was doing was very closely aligned with my interests. And so I really just reached out to him to have kind of an informational interview uh, to learn more about the work he was doing. And also, I wasn't quite sure at that time if I wanted to go to grad school. And so he provided a lot of a lot of helpful insight and guidance into what graduate school was like and what I should do to prepare myself uh, if I wanted to be a competitive applicant. Then what are a few of your most memorable responsibilities or projects as a member of the leadership team with the lab? I think one of the great opportunities that the lab provided is that, and it's partly a function of Dr. Elias's leadership style, is that he puts a lot of trust in the lab members and especially the graduate students. And, uh, and so when we were launching a new project, um, he allowed me to introduce some of the ideas that I had been uh, interested in, such as the, uh, the contribution that design thinking methodology, like human-centered design, which is a, a methodology that's often used when making products uh, for, for companies uh, to make a product. Oh, sorry, I didn't hear you. that a little bit? Oh, um, what design thinking is? Yeah. Sure, yeah. So it involves um, kind of the process of, well, broadly speaking, it's designing processes and products that are user-friendly, that are intuitive. So an example sometimes people give is like, oh, a lot of the Apple products are very easy to understand. You don't necessarily need a, an instruction manual to be able to figure it out. And so applying, and so the methodology to get to that point that it's to create user-centered products and processes uh, is a, pro a combination of using a lot of empathy, a lot of interviewing people, a lot of observing them in their environment, uh, as well as what's called rapid prototyping, which is uh, kind of putting forth a prototype of a product, not in its fully finished form, uh, but just an early stage, what's called a minimum viable product, and then kind of testing it out, see what works, what doesn't, what people like, what people don't, how they interact with it, and then iterating on it, refining it uh, until it becomes very user-friendly, user-centered. And so although that process um, of uh, has been applied to uh, the product development space in like Silicon Valley, for instance, it hasn't uh, had as much airtime in the psychological intervention space. So I felt like, oh, this would be a great opportunity to apply this methodology to developing school-based psychological interventions, uh, which we I was able to do a little bit of at Dr. Duckworth's character lab. Um, and so we were able to apply that methodology to developing some of the uh, curriculum, curricular materials that we had developed in the lab. 
And that was just a really great process to be able to work alongside teachers, to have a really collaborative process and to see the fruits of the labor and to see that, wow, this is leading to a much better outcome and product than if we had just kind of developed our own interventions without any input and insight from the field. Uh, and, uh, and then ultimately it's helping teachers in very stressful environments um, use these interventions in a much easier way. And it, it uh, takes some of the stress off of them. And so uh, that was a very meaningful and valuable uh, experience. Would you mind giving us kind of an example or do you have any stories from that process working with teachers to make this approach more user-friendly? Yeah, I think where it really came up was with a more one of the more recent projects, which is called STAT, which is an acronym that stands for Students Taking Action Together. Uh, and to provide some context, um, many social and emotional learning programs are comprehensive uh, school-wide programs that are implemented throughout the school year. Uh, they have multiple components and they can be very time intensive. Uh, and so one of the requests by we've been hearing from teachers is how can we create, um, can we introduce uh, curricular materials that help to develop social and emotional skills in students, but it's not like an add-on for the teachers. It's kind of embedded in their curriculum. Uh, model that Dr. Elias talks about a lot. Sorry, say that again. Like the schoolhouse model that Dr. Elias talks about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, we really want it to be kind of embedded in the natural ecology of, of the school. Um, and, and so, and what that also does is that we can more easily disseminate these interventions if they're not really um, uh, complex in uh, all-encompassing interventions. And so, uh, and so to develop these, these um, teaching strategies that that has that we developed through through this stat uh, intervention, uh, we ap applied this design thinking methodology, and so we worked with a number of teachers to proto to develop prototypes of what these materials could look like, uh, and then we refine them. Uh, and we've been in the process of disseminating those materials throughout New Jersey. Uh, so. And we've received a lot of very positive feedback. And actually, I'm sure Dr. Elias would encourage me to mention that we also have a book that's going to be released uh, sometime uh, in the next in the coming months. Are we are we allowed to know the name of it? Maybe. <laughs> you know, I don't know if the the name has been finalized, so I'm not, I'm not even going to go there. But it's it's related to STAT, which is students taking action together. Okay, awesome. We've we've got um, some prospective interviews lined up with um, Laura Bond and Dr. Lauren mm -hmm. Palmer talking about STAT. So great. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, they're good. I it's been, it was. It's such a pleasure working with them. They are fantastic. Uh, and they are teachers. Uh, they have, have been in leadership positions. They've, uh, they've led seminars on social and emotional learning. They're, 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 um, so they're, they have an excellent perspective in terms of the teacher lens, in terms of the, um, the administrator lens, a leadership lens. So they'll be great to talk with. It seems like the world of SECD is like very small, but in, in a large way where, where a lot of things are being done, but where all of the leaders in the field are interconnected and working with one another and collaborating. That's what I mean by small, not in time. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that potentially may speak to one of the values uh, of SEL, um, which is to be able to work collaborative, collaboratively with other people uh, 
so so hopefully it's a reflection that people are practicing what they preach. So uh, did you focus a lot of your research from this experience then? What is some of your research and your peer-reviewed um, articles focus on? Um, is there a recurring trend? Yeah, um, I would say one of the primary themes has been related to purpose in life. Uh, this is something that originally got me interested in graduate school, as I was talking about uh, Viktor Frankl earlier. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, some of my research has been related to how students think about purpose in life, particularly students uh, from communities that uh, maybe uh, typically from a lower socioeconomic status um, and from typically racial and ethnic minority backgrounds. Uh, and, and again, one of my interests in this is that I feel like purpose in life can be a, an invaluable resource for people to uh, help them uh, navigate adversity. And so uh, some of my research has been related to that construct of purpose in life. And uh, more recently, my dissertation was related to um, what, what's called a, a beyond the self purpose. So not just a purpose that's self-oriented, but focused on the world beyond the self. Uh, so that's, that, I would say that is the, the primary theme of my research. So how would you define purpose then for students? Um, what does that look like? Yeah, so I mean, part of the, the research was looking at how students themselves were defining it, but in general, I, a, commonly accepted definition was put forth by uh, Dr. Bill Damon, uh, who's at Stanford, and uh, he put forth this definition, um, I believe in, he has a paper from 2003, uh, and he talks about how a purpose is really a long-term, meaningful goal that extends beyond the self. So it has multiple components um, including the fact that it's a long-term goal. It's not just a short-term goal. Uh, it's meaningful to the person who's doing it. Uh, and it extends beyond the self. It's not just self-oriented. So some, those are some of the components of a, what's called a beyond the self purpose. So would you, would you say that that's kind of similar to a commitment to the self or a commitment to a community that being valuable in this context of purpose? Um, Sorry, can you rephrase that? So um, purpose being committing, committing or investing in yourself as a student or as an adolescent, committing to yourself, um, whether that be in the scope of committing to your community or investing in your communities, et cetera. Yeah, I think it's, it's a combination. I don't think, um, uh, I think it can be a combination of both self-oriented and beyond the self. And I think both are important. Uh, so I don't think um, it has to be excluded to just beyond the self aims that are purely altruistic. I think in, it's, it's very hard to find um, <laughs> a purely altruistic act. And I don't think there's anything wrong with something that is both fulfilling and personally meaningful and that, uh, improves the world. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I think it's a commitment. It can be a commitment to both the self and to the world beyond the self. So um, going back to stat a little bit, um, this spring, you published an article with Dr. Elias and Laura Bond um, called Empowering Students for Social Action and Social Studies. Um, would you mind walking us through some of the SEL strategies recommended in this article for social studies curricula? And um, another question is that yeah. how can such strategies follow students throughout their lives and adapt through time? Mm. Uh, sure. So, yeah, so some of the strategies that I think would be worth touching on are uh, what, what we, are, we call respectful debate. Uh, so a lot of teachers may be uh, putting... Um, doing debates in their classrooms, but we just provide some additional recommendations for how to uh, 
how to organize those debates so that they also deliberately enhance students' social and emotional skills. And so examples would be, uh, we encourage students to debate from both sides of whatever the argument is related to. So rather than just debating from one side, we also have them switch sides and then debate from the other side. Um, and this helps enhance perspective taking, empathy, um, recognizing that maybe there is some validity to the other side. Uh, so that's one key component. Another key component that we emphasize uh, is that students will reflect back what the other side said. So they kind of summarize what the other side said and then check for understanding. And so this helps to cut down on a lot of misunderstandings uh, that can arise when people are debating and then they end up debating about different things entirely. Uh, and so we want to cut down on that. And then we also encourage um, students to read nuanced articles on the topic. So they're reading uh, maybe very uh, liberal articles and then very conservative articles and then more moderate articles. So they're getting more of a complete picture of whatever the topic is that they're debating. So that's one of the strategies is respectful debate. Uh, Another strategy is called PLAN. PLAN is an acronym. You'll notice we have a lot of acronyms. Uh, PLAN uh, is a problem-solving framework that can be applied to uh, social problems, interpersonal problems. It can be applied to analyzing historical dilemmas. Uh, it can be applied to analyzing literature. And uh, it's a very useful, transferable problem-solving technique. And uh, just quickly, each of the letters stand for, so P of plan stands for uh, the problem. So really clearly defining what the problem is, what is the goal that um, we ultimately want to accomplish. Uh, L of plan stands for listing the options. So oftentimes uh, we will default to the same solutions that we've done in the past, we've, we've kind of resorted to in the past. And, um, and we often expect different results, even though we're applying the same solutions. And so the L of listing options is really to encourage students to list as many options uh, as possible and really think outside the box. Uh, and then to decide on which to, to weigh to to list the pros and the cons of each of those options so that they're making a well-informed decision and then the a of plan stands for action plan so developing a clear action plan that they can follow through with uh but also the a can stand for anticipating obstacles oftentimes we fought we we get into trouble with setting plans and setting goals uh, because we haven't anticipated what obstacles might arise. Uh, Gabrielle Edigen, she's a psychologist at NYU, she does a lot of great work on goal setting. And one of the th things she mentions is you really, to be successful in following through with your goals, you really need to anticipate and plan for the obstacles uh, so that you can uh, navigate them when they arise. And then the N stands for noticing successes, notice what works, what didn't work, and work, and then uh, based on the results and the outcomes, you can go back to the drawing board. If it didn't really work, then you can start back towards the beginning of the process. Maybe you're defining the problem uh, in a way that's not very helpful. Uh, maybe it need, the de definition of the problem needs to be redefined a little bit. Uh, maybe the goal is not really so clear, uh, or maybe the option you selected was not the best option. And so uh, it's an iterative, um, process. So would, would you say that this is also that that plan is also applicable for educators um, and people at all levels of the administrative structure? Absolutely. And I not only is it applicable to, I think, everyone in not only a school system, but everyone in life, because we all face problems on a daily basis. Uh, I think it's essential actually that the teachers and the administrators in a school are living by these strategies and they're modeling for students how you actually apply these strategies in an effective way. Uh, that's one of the 
key ways that students learn is through people modeling uh, how to do certain things. That's Albert Bandura, who, who talks about uh, another great psychologist um, who talks about uh, how we learn. And that's one of the ways to do that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, going off topic a little bit, congratulations sure. on receiving your PhD. Thank you. What was this process like for you? And do you have any advice for any of our listeners on a similar path? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you very much. Um, it, uh, I guess in terms of advice, um, let me think about that. Uh, I would say one of the things is to find a topic that really interests you. Um, the dissertation, it's, it can be a long road. And if you're not interested in what you're studying and researching, uh, then it's going to be much harder to sustain uh, your interest and motivation throughout the process. So I would say that's one thing. But I think the other thing to keep in mind is that it's very unlikely that the dissert your dissertation is going to change the world. Uh, and so don't necessarily get caught up in this having to be the perfect uh, idea, uh, because as somebody, as many people have said in the past, a good dissertation is a finished disser dissertation. <laughs> so you really want to get it done so you can continue to move on and be productive in your career uh, and to do things that really matter and are meaningful to you. So I think th those are two things to keep in mind. Uh, I also think um, consulting with your advisor to making sure, <laughs> making sure you're on the same page with your advisor is critical. I was very fortunate to have Dr. Elias as my advisor, who <laughs> is very approachable, very understanding, very supportive, uh, and very uh, insightful. And, uh, and so I definitely encourage people to, um, to consult with their advisor. And then I would say if anybody who's listening to this is in the process of working on their master's or dissertation, one of the books that I was recommended uh, just before starting graduate school was called Dissertations and Theses from Start to Finish, Psychology and Related Fields. Um, it's by John Cohn and Sharon Foster, at least the edition that I had. And I think there's a later edition that also includes Deborah Bell as a co-author. Uh, that book was invaluable and in kind of walking out what are the different steps of the dissertation, what questions to be asking, what to be considering. Uh, so yeah, that was invaluable. And then I would say the last thing is to really celebrate your successes, um, celebrate the dissertation, celebrate uh, each stage of graduate school. Because I think oftentimes what I found is that a lot of people would be like, they would get it done. And then it was like, okay, let's move on to the next thing. And I think I always made a conscious effort to celebrate each stage, each milestone in graduate school. Uh, and, uh, and so I would encourage whoever is going through this process to do, to do that. Um, so you touched on it earlier. What was the title of your dissertation and how long did it take you? So the dissertation, um, how long did it take? <laughs> I mean, it, it's hard to, I, I'm having a hard time remembering how long exactly, but there was the, yeah. So, um, but in terms of the name of the dissertation, I'm actually going to have to look at, it's a pretty long title. So I think I'll have to look it up uh, in order to give you the, the accurate title of the dissertation, um, which if you just bear with me, yeah, take your I should have it right here. Uh, so the title of the dissertation was um, Beyond the Self-Purpose in Early Adolescence from Low-Income, Racial, and Ethnic Minority Backgrounds, The Role of Emotions. So it's a, it's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> Probably easier to, to see it visually than to hear it. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's the title. And what was some of your research with it? 
So, yeah, sure. And actually, this this kind of connects to the previous question you asked, which is what is some advice for the district related around the dissertation is that I was I had the opportunity to teach a positive psychology class at Rutgers. Uh, and while teaching that course, I came across uh, Barbara Fredrickson's Broaden and Build Theory of Positive Emotions. And after reading more about that theory, I realized, oh, wait a minute, I can kind of use that as a framework to think about some of the work that we're doing in our lab. Um, and, uh, and so I would say one piece of advice when working on a dissertation uh, is to always be open to different ideas and make note of things that are in, that are interesting to you uh, and maybe keep a notebook or keep a document on your computer uh, and you can go back to that and return to that and you never know how it might connect to another idea that you come across and so um, so I was very in, interested in this idea that uh, while while uh, negatively balanced emotions like anxiety and fear can serve to kind of narrow our focus uh, for the purposes of survival. Uh, more positive emotions from an evolutionary perspective, uh, more positive emotions like gratitude, for instance, uh, can broaden our attention. That's what the theory says so that we can uh, can uh, procure more resources that can help enhance our resilience in the future. And so I was curious whether students who uh, scored highly on measures of these positive emotions and did not score quite as, and scored lower on um, uh, measures of negative emotions like anxiety, um, would they be more likely to have what I referred to before as a beyond the self purpose. Um, and so uh, that's what I was looking at. I was looking at whether uh, those two variables um, could help predict whether students had beyond the self purpose. And these are students in middle school, uh, again, from low income, racial, and ethnic minority backgrounds. Uh, and so that's, that's what I was looking at. Were there any particularly surprising findings? Um, I think, well, what was interesting is that students um, who endorsed uh, higher scores on gratitude were more likely to have a beyond the self purpose, not necessarily if they scored um, highly on more negatively balanced emotions. Uh, and so I think more work needs to be more research needs to be done, but it does seem to support this broaden and build theory of positive emotions that more positively balanced emotions can lead to a more broadened perspective, a beyond the self perspective, um, which was an interesting insight. So then uh, what were your primary studies at Rutgers clinical psychology doctoral program? And then again, what were your primary studies um, at the Yale School of Medicine's doctoral internship in clinical and community psych? Sure, yeah. Um, so my primary focus, I mean, being in the social, emotional, and character development lab at Rutgers, um, that was my primary focus to develop and um, consult on, evaluate, and disseminate uh, social, emotional, um, and character development interventions. Uh, but I also uh, did a lot of clinical work in uh, various clinics. Uh, I did work with anxiety, with uh, Tourette's syndrome, uh, with um, alcohol use. Uh, so I was able to work with a, a variety of populations uh, and uh, which was incredibly valuable uh, and meaningful work. And when I was on my clinical internship this past year, which was at Yale School of Medicine's um, consultation center, uh, I did a combination of uh, program development, program consultation, uh, and dissemination on a lot of, again, on several social emotional learning and health promotion uh, pr uh, programs. Uh, 
And I also had the opportunity to do a, a minor rotation uh, at the Child and Adolescent Services uh, Clinic uh, in the area in West Haven, Connecticut. And, uh, and so I was able to do some trauma-focused uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, for instance, uh, and uh, working with youth who have experienced a lot of adversity in their lives. So it was a combination of these kind of tier one uh, school-wide social emotional learning interventions, uh, as well as some one-on-one -on -one therapy. So you are taking a moment to celebrate your success with your PhD. Have you begun your postdoctoral fellowship at the Mayo Clinic yet? Um, if not, what are you excited for? Yeah, no, so I have not yet started the postdoc, um, but I will be starting in September. And uh, <laughs> so that's exciting. And um, I think I'm, I'm excited about several things. I think I'm excited that uh, this will be an opportunity to help people. I mean, so, to, to provide some context, so it's a, it, the, the postdoc is a combination of uh, research and clinical work. And the clinical work is related to um, clinical and pediatric psychology. So I'll be doing rotations in uh, pain management, weight management, uh, anxiety and mood disorders, consultation and liaison services. Uh, and so I'm particularly interested in helping, working with patients and clients and families who are struggling with really challenging health-related issues and helping them cultivate the mindsets, the attitudes, uh, and the lifestyles to help them thrive even, in, even while experiencing these really challenging circumstances. So that's what I'm excited about doing, especially in a different context. Again, most of my work has been done in, with schools, and now I'll be able to do this in a medical uh, setting. Uh, and I think the other aspect is, and I I, I was exposed to some of this when working um, on an alcohol uh, use study, uh, where helping helping people to um, to navigate and overcome some of their um, things that they may at one point thought were really difficult, if not impossible to change, um, helping and helping them cultivate kind of what uh, 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 Dr. Dweck at, at Stanford would call a, um, a growth mindset uh, about if I can do this, if I can overcome this, uh, then I can overcome anything. Uh, and so really that's, I think probably what I'm most excited about is helping people cultivate that growth mindset. If I can manage this illness, um, or this hardship, then I can manage pretty much anything else that comes my way. Uh, and that's exciting to me to help people really develop this, these growth and limitless mindsets. And then you're the problem solver, like yourself ongoing if, if with the growth mindset. Absolutely. I think it, it kind of is related to uh, that saying that if you give someone a fish, they eat for a day, but if you teach someone to fish, they can eat for a lifetime. And so yeah. I think um, ultimately that's, that's one of the main goals is to help people um, develop the skills and tools to navigate life successfully and uh, achieve their full potential. So back to your love for podcasts. Um, yeah. What are some of the podcasts you're tuning into these days? Are there any SEL related or psych related um, podcasts that you would recommend to us or our viewers? Listening? Yeah, it's, it's funny because I feel like SEL related podcasts could be so many different <laughs> things because SEL can be very broad. We're talking about like life here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, which I love, I, that's what I love about SEL. Um, it's so relevant to life. And, uh, and so I would say the podcasts that I really enjoy listening to are typically long form interviews 
uh, where we really get a window into people's lives, their struggles, their um, the, the tools and resources they use to navigate challenging circumstances. Uh, and so I think some of the podcasts that really do that well, um, one that I've been listening to recently is Armchair Expert uh, with uh, Dax Shepard, who's um, an actor and comedian, and his co-host Monica Padman, I believe is her last name. Uh, and uh, and then I he, and one thing I like about that podcast is that one, it's very improvisational, it's very funny, it's very humorous, um, but it can also get very deep. Uh, and they ask some really uh, great poignant questions uh what podcasts that are managed to do both they're the best (laughs) oh yeah absolutely uh and uh and then I would also say uh on Guy Raz's podcast how I built this uh which looks at entrepreneurs and and their story it's always they tell a very interesting story about their journey uh, and again, some of the obstacles and challenges they face and how they navigated them. I think it provides invaluable insight into uh, how to uh, face life's challenges. Um, and I think the, mo- the most interesting ones are the interviews with people who you feel like you can relate to. Like, if this person can do this, so can I. And um, and that goes back to that whole growth mindset thing, I feel like is um, kind of like giving you a sense that, and a sense of empowerment that I can, I can do this thing that previously I may have thought was impossible or really daunting. Uh, so I would say those two, I would say a number of others are like, that kind of fall into that category are um, uh, like, Work Life, which is Adam, uh, Dr. Adam Grant's podcast. He's an organizational psychologist. Uh, some of uh, Dr. Brene Brown's podcasts, she has Dare to Lead, Unlocking Us. Um, I think Tim Ferriss uh, sometimes gets into that. Uh, Michael Gervais, he's a sport and performance psychologist. Uh, and uh, his podcast is called Finding Mastery. Choiceology is one. Now I'm just listing a bunch of them. Choiceology is a very cool um, kind of behavioral economics type podcast and gets into uh, some of the uh, seemingly um, seemingly irrational behaviors that we engage in as humans uh, and uh, how to be on the lookout for that. Also, um, the Happiness Lab, which uh, Dr. Lori Santos at um, at Yale, she also has one of the most popular Coursera classes on positive psychology. She um, she has a great podcast. Uh, so yeah, those are a number of the the podcasts that I would recommend. Before we let you go, what are some things that you would make sure to tell your younger self? That could be at any stage um, of it doesn't have to be like child Sam, you know, it could be, (laughs) Um, but do tell us which and why. Sure. Um, I would say uh, maybe a couple of things, but one is the, is to maintain a, a, a curious mindset to, I think that's invaluable in so many respects. Uh, I think having approaching difficult conversations and approaching people who who you may be frustrated with, with a sense of curiosity. So like a sense of, I wanna learn from this situation. I wanna learn from this person's perspective, I think is invaluable in interpersonal uh, situations. I think uh, having a a curious uh, approach to life um, I think is invaluable when it comes to just growth and resilience uh, and finding meaning in what we're doing. So for instance, if I experience something and I, if I think, oh, that was such a waste of time versus, well, what did I learn from this situation? What did I learn about myself? What did I learn about what I want to do, what I don't want to do in the future? Uh, 
I think is invaluable. And I think you can take that, it, it's something you can take with you wherever you go. Uh, and so, and I think it has led to a lot of the positions that I've had in my career, uh, just by having these type of informational interviews with people, not as like a way to network, which I know many people are very, and as am I, I, I kind of uh, feel weird about that, that idea of networking. But I, I think having conversations with people out of genuine curiosity and wanting to learn, it can lead to relationships, it can lead to new ideas, uh, and it just can be very inspiring. And that's actually what led me to um, the Social, Emotional, and Character Development Lab was a conversation like that. Um, and so I think having that, that mindset of curiosity is, is so invaluable. So we, we wanna thank you so much for joining us today and providing our audience with this wealth of info. Um, so we wanna provide this opportunity for you to make any closing remarks and maybe leave the audience with some insight or where we can find you on the web. Sure. Uh, so first of all, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure meeting you, Isar. And um, I, I mean, it's always fun to connect with people from the Social, Emotional, and Character Development Lab because I feel like the lab attracts people who want to do good and are genuinely great people. <laughs> and so, uh, so I always love talking with people from the lab. Uh, and uh, and I get. What? There's people from all walks of life. Yes, yes. It's, it, it attracts such a diverse group of people. Um, and, uh, and I guess in terms of where you can find me, uh, you know, I'm actually, I've thought about starting a, my own podcast because I love podcasts so much and I love talking with people. Uh, so maybe I'll, I'll put that out there, but currently that's, that's not the case. Uh, so I mean, uh, if, if people are listening to this and have questions, uh, you can reach out to me at my email, which is samuelnaiman at gmail.com. Uh, so uh, that's probably the best way to, to get in touch with me. All right, listeners, that's pretty much all we have for you today. Uh, we hope you thoroughly enjoyed tuning into our podcast. And... Um, you can find more about Sam on LinkedIn at Sam Namit and on the SECD Lab website um, at www.secdlab.org slash And as always, make sure to check out secdlab.org and at SECD Lab on Twitter, Spotify, Apple Podcast, everything. <laughs> and <laughs> stay in the loop with SEL and podcast updates. Have a great day, everyone. <laughs>